0: Hello everyone and welcome to another Candidate Support episode of the RICS podcast series. I'm Graham, part of the Candidate Support team, and our role is to support candidates right through their chartered assessment journey, right from enrolment to the uh, point that we're discussing today, the uh, final assessment interview. I'm delighted to be joined today by Jen Lehman. Uh, Jen is an RICS member, assessor, coach, and a very active in all things assessment. So, uh, Welcome, Jen. And before we start, if I could just invite you to share a bit about yourself and your involvement with uh, RICS assessments.
1: Thanks, Graham. So uh, I'm Chartered Surveyor Fellow, uh, and I founded with my business partner Rachel about five or six years ago a company called Property Elite, where we provide training and support to aspiring RICS professionals. I also run an RICS regulated firm, primarily providing lease consultancy advice. I've worked in the industry for. About 15 years now which is uh, slightly scary and um, through that time I've done lots of professional work but also some lecturing at various universities and obviously my involvement with the RICS through assessing APC interviews and at the moment I've been doing um, some auditing for apprentices and prelim review and associate RICS written assessment so I've done a little bit of everything which is quite quite nice for a broad um broad idea of what, what happens and why.
0: Lovely. So, as I mentioned, the focus for today is where it all leads to the uh, final assessment interview. But before we go into the interview itself, I just want to start with the uh, lead up. Um, so, between a candidate submitting and sitting for interview there's often a gap of a couple of months. So, um, Jen, do you have any tips on uh, how a candidate should use um, this time to prepare?
1: Yeah, definitely. I always um <clears throat> I always think it's really important for candidates to almost split split the time pre-submission and pre-interview because so much work goes into the submission that that's not really the time for the in-depth revision, the preparation. That's the time to really focus on getting the um getting the submission spot on. I think as soon as a candidate submits their attention then really really needs to turn Onto to getting really familiar with their submission. So knowing the examples inside out at levels two and three, and then starting the revision process. My advice usually tends to be for candidates at the start of that two or three months to start quite widely. So looking at all the competencies, prioritizing them from, say, the weakest to the most confident, and always keeping ethics in mind because obviously that's the key competency where there's no real leeway for error. Once candidates have an idea of where they're a little bit weaker, those are the competencies to start with. Some wide reading, lots of different sources, and actually looking at how a candidate learns best. It could be videos, reading, making their own notes. There's so many different ways, rather than just reading their submission a hundred times that can work. And then as they get closer to their interview, they can really focus in, you know, there could be some bits they do need to memorize, you know, they need to know the ins and outs of their examples, and I also just tend to think throughout all of that. The we all know that the the APC it's it's not an exam, so the key is for a candidate to be able to take what they've written and be able to verbalise it. So can they can can they answer questions concisely, clearly? Can they talk comfortably and confidently about what they did and why they do it, and bringing the piece of paper, bringing the submission to life? that is one of the most important parts of that, that two to three month prep period. And I just say maybe finally that some ha- candidates that I've worked with or I've counselled do so much that they tend to burn out and peak too soon. And it's being able to kind of ride the wave of revision because you obviously get your three weeks notice and being able to manage manage the process, but still keep a level head and not burn out. is a It's a very fine balance and, you know, Taking a breather and having some fun activities or some time out around revision is equally as important as the, the preparation itself.
0: Yeah, definitely. I'd definitely agree with that, one. So moving to the interview itself. So um it's of course opens with that case study presentation, and the candidate has to deliver. So um, is there any best practice advice you can share on this? of so what, what what are you looking to come through during that that 10 minutes?
1: Sure. So I suppose by the other time a candidate's in front of us, the only the only perception we've really built of them is the submission and obviously the brief welcome we get before the 10 minutes. So that 10 minutes, it's it's such a it's such a vital opportunity for the candidate to to show show us as assessors of them and them as a professional. You know, we're looking for things like good communication skills, the ability to present. You know, we can very quite quickly picture what they'd be like in a, a client-facing scenario. I always think things like your verbal communication is really important, but also non-verbal, so body language, where you're looking, how you're coming across, um, and that is supported ideally by a really good visual aid. We're always looking for a visual aid to support what you're saying, not to lead the presentation so it adds, not detracts from that 10 minutes that the candidate has. I think the best candidate presentations are where they've been practiced so much that it's a very fluid talk. It's not being read from a script. Uh, it could definitely be supported maybe by some cue cards. And I know that in the in the stress and the, the nerves of the APC, it's so easy to kind of lose lose your train of thought and actually having maybe 10 cue cards, one for each minute, with just a sentence to remind you where you're up to can help to make it more fluid. And that 10 minutes is really the opportunity for the candidate to introduce themselves, introduce the work they do, Uh, And it's obviously not just presenting the case study verbatim. It, It might be introducing something new. It could be talking about a particularly interesting aspect. And I suppose in a way, it's showing your enthusiasm and motivation for getting qualified. And if a candidate does a really, really interesting, exciting, good presentation that sets up the remaining 50 minutes of the interview, really really nicely I think when you get off on the bad foot with a presentation that doesn't go as you planned it it makes it more difficult for you as a candidate to feel confident and I think the confidence you can build from a good case study presentation is the best thing you can do to get that interview off to a really really nice start
0: yeah, definitely, definitely. I think one of the questions also I think it's also that finding the style for them as well is the often think Sometimes the question we get asked is what are the rules that you know, that there's this sort of fixed set of rules for how they do a presentation. It's, it's about trying to find that that style that works for you, isn't it? In you know a
1: what uh, yeah, I think you're right on that because maybe for other elements of the submission, there's very strict requirements of, you know, there's this there's this structure, but in the in the case study presentation basically the candidate guide says you have 10 minutes to present on your case, and a lot of candidates are looking for, well, you know, do I have to have two minutes on this or one minute on that? And the, uh, yeah, I always think the guidance that, I don't know, think about it like a client pitch. You know, it's a 10-minute opportunity to tell a story. So what do you need for a good story? It's a good start, it's a good end, and a good bit of sandwich filler in the middle. So I think if candidates kind of take it as an opportunity to, to, to be interesting and a little bit innovative in pitching the case study to the panel. Yep. That can make it quite quite a nice nice way to deal with it.
0: Yeah, no, that's a great way to put it. Okay, so we did mention that that next 50 minutes, which is, uh, well, obviously after the case study, there's that 10 minutes of Q&A, but then that final portion is that sort of broader discussion around sort of the competency, the ethics, CP. So again, any um, advice, any best practice, any do's or don'ts?
1: Yeah, so obviously 50 minutes, starting with a case study, looking at the technical competencies and then looking at the mandatories and ethics. So candidates should expect a question on everything. And I think the real key there is knowing the submission and, you know, anything that a candidate writes is fair game to be asked a question on. As assessors, we're always trained to start at the highest level. So let's say level three. Uh, and we're going to be going well you know you've given an example of say evaluation in bristol in you know in valuation talk us through it tell us about the advice you gave so i think where a candidate really knows their examples and they've practiced those answers out loud that is a definite do for good preparation i think another good do in terms of um the questioning is actually just to practice on camera with Q&A sessions you know it could be with anybody it doesn't necessarily matter if they're a surveyor it's about you practicing the answers out loud and I, I think all the way through that interview candidates should be thinking about well if a client asked me this question how would I answer it and sometimes as assessors we're looking to see what advice the candidate gave under the circumstances and sometimes that is to understand that the candidate knows where they're where their scope of competence, where their scope of practice starts and where it ends. So I think candidates really have to practice that skill of listening to the question and answering the question that they're asked, not necessarily telling the assessors everything they know about a topic, which I know when, when you're under pressure is something that's very, very easy to do is just to go and just give a verbal dump of everything you've learned. So I think a definite don't, uh, is to say everything you know. It's definitely to listen really, really carefully. And if you give a nice, concise answer, and we still want to know more, we'll just ask you another question until we're satisfied, and then we'll we'll move on. I think candidates can also sometimes be caught out by unexpected questions, and I think uh, the definite don't in that scenario is to become defensive or. or you know, to to be difficult about it. I think um, sometimes it can help to ask for clarification of a question and absolutely will be more than happy to rephrase it. Or the candidate just needs to take a deep breath, think about the question. You know, they could come back to it at the end if it's a real, really, you know, one they're not sure of or find a way to answer it. And I think not knowing a submission is the definite don't and the and the be all, end all don't. So the mo- the more a candidate knows what they've written, They can talk about it, you know, they can talk about things related to it, they can, you know, express the advice. That will put them in the best, best chance of success for those 50 minutes.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I think it's a good point about that, Lisa. I think it is the thing that we try to sort of stress is that the assessors, they're not there to trip a candidate up. Actually, your objective is to draw those competencies out, really, isn't it? You're not there to sort of trip them up. So try and sort of go with the uh, assessors and, uh, and, and also the Know Your Submission one, I know, yeah, it <laughs> would we do get a lot of feedback about that. And uh, I think the point you say about the um, everything that's in the submission is sort of open game, really, I think, and particularly sort of the CPD record. I know some candidates are quite surprised that they kind of, be, they do their 48 hours and that sort of tick that box and that it won't be sort of part of the Again, it's Again, if it's in the submission, it's uh, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, open game, as you say.
1: Oh, the CPD one is a good one because I think the CPD record probably shows how up-to-date and kind of current a candidate is, you know, on market trends, hot topics, whatever it is. So I think the bit on CPD should probably be everything in the CPD record needs to relate to one of the competencies. I, I had a candidate recently in their CPD record who'd done loads of wonderful CPD. But some of the activities didn't relate in any way to their competencies. And the discussion we had was, well, if you're asked about a question about that at interview, how are you going to deal with it? Because it's not something you do. And if it's CPD, it needs to be relevant, you know, to either a mandatory or a technical competency. So it shouldn't really be in there. So I think making sure that even when a candidate is doing CPD, during, you know, during the process, it actually needs to be very relevant to their competencies because as you said if they're asked about it you've got a real problem if it's something that um you can't relate to and if you can relate it to something you do at work and in your examples it's going to be a lot easier to to learn and remember for for calling out an interview
0: exactly yeah it's a little bit more than a tick box exercise which some (laughs) may feel that it is (laughs) definitely Okay, so uh, well, one of the common questions we do get from candidates is sort of in terms of the level of detail, particularly when it comes to things like guidance notes and standards. So, sort of what are assessors looking for, and also if a candidate sort of cannot can't answer a question, sort of any sort of tips around sort of that
1: that that scenario. Yeah, sure. So, I think in terms of the level of knowledge that candidates need, that knowledge needs to relate, I think, primarily to their examples, and obviously if they've Let's say if a candidate's done evaluation, they'll need to know the knowledge underlying that. So in that case, it would be the Red Book. Do they need to know the Red Book word for word? No. Do they need to know the key principles and how those principles relate to the work they did? Yes. So by way of example for the Red Book, I kind of expect a candidate to know the broad principles of PS1 and 2 and VPS1 to 5, you know, what's in a set of terms of engagement, what are the bases of value, what are the definitions, et cetera. But then when you look at the VPGAs at the end, you might then just know the ones that are relevant to your examples and you'd know what else is in there and where to find it, but you wouldn't be expected to read it out word for word. Um, You know, the same could imply, for example, to inspection and surveying safely uh, or perhaps for a residential candidate, the Home Survey Standard. The same even applies to the Rules of Conduct you know, candidates need to know what the five rules of conduct are, the behaviors behind them. But the the real skill of learning about something is being able to apply it to examples and how those principles relate to the work that a candidate does. So I think that's key. The other the other thing that I just thought about talking about RICS guidance um, in particular, candidates often go, well, do I need to know editions and dates and the full titles? Which I think is a really interesting one. And uh, I think candidates definitely know it need to know what the titles are. I think my view is that um, personally, I find dates really difficult to remember, so I tend to remember the editions better. I think if something's really recent, it's really good to know when it was released because I think that's relevant, but perhaps candidates could, you know look at an edition or a date of release and make sure that they're just consistent throughout their submission on what they're writing down. And I think the case of questions that a candidate doesn't know the answer to, uh, that could be maybe signposting to a document. So you can say, well, you know, I'm, I'm aware that there's a, a guidance note on comparable evidence in property valuation, for example. And I know what the principles are. You know, I know that if I wanted to find out about, I don't know, the, the category of comparable evidence, I could look in that guidance. So knowing about the guidance and where to pull out information from could be an answer. Sometimes a candidate might get a question that is just not within the scope of what they should know. So, a commercial real estate candidate who's inspected, let's say, a shop to advise on a letting, might see some damp or a crack. They might be asked, Well, how did you diagnose that? And, you know, that's not something that was in their scope of inspection, their terms of engagement. So, the answer to that could possibly be. I advise my clients to instruct a building surveyor. We wouldn't be looking for them to tell us how they would diagnose something that's not a competency and part of their part of their role. I think candidates can also just say, I need to come back to it at the end of the interview, write it down. And I know that in my own APC, I was asked, what's the definition of market value? And my brain just went blank. I just, I, so I genuinely can't remember it, but I'll come back to it at the end. So I wrote it down and at the end, it just came back to me in a flash of it just my brain did exactly what it should have done and it came out so that just giving yourself a bit of time to come back to an answer can be um can be really helpful I think the key then is a variety of different answers to use if you're not quite sure and not just saying I don't know because that doesn't doesn't show resourcefulness it doesn't show if a client asked you that question you wouldn't just go I don't know you go well I don't know the answer right now but I'd speak to you know I'd speak to a building surveyor in my office. I'd go and look in this document and giving giving that explanation of how you'd find the answer. I think obviously shows that you're a good professional because you're not just saying, I don't know, and that's that's not really an answer that um, we're looking for.
0: I think it's like you said that uh, it's not an exam, is it? But it's about sort of demonstrating your professionalism really you're using it. So any misconceptions that candidates, any myths that can be busted.
1: Oh. So many. Um, I think the biggest misconception, as I think I said before, is that it's an exam. Candidates aren't going in and doing having to do a GCSE exam of I know this. Um, that's level one, and it's that's not the level of competence we're looking for to be a chartered surveyor. We don't expect candidates to know everything, but I suppose in in effect we need a candidate to show that there are safe pair of hands when they walk out of that interview, if they get their letters, would they be competent to set up in practice effectively and set up a regulated firm? And if if we feel that they're competent to do that, they should pass. So it's not an exam. It's not all about knowledge. It's about showing reasoned advice or actions at level two and having the the knowledge base to back that up. Another one is that um, assessors don't want candidates to pass. And we're putting up a barrier and being gatekeepers to stop people entering the profession and the truth couldn't be further from that you know we're all assessors because we we have a genuine passion for being a surveyor supporting the RICS and you know bringing the next generation of surveyors through and we we need them you know to, to keep the industry going personally as an assessor all I want to do is create an environment that each candidate can succeed in if they're of the required standards. So, you know, we're making sure that we're accommodating each candidate's diverse needs. You know, we're creating a really, really positive environment where they can get answers out that show their competence. And we're definitely not here to create any barriers to passing. We're just trying to give a a robust, fair and consistent interview. So I think that's definitely... A myth that we don't want people to pass there's no there's no set percentage of candidates that were told who can pass or set number it's just if you're competent you should get your letters uh yeah the only other one i could just think of was that it's also knowledge-based it's um candidates need to know that whatever question they're given they need to answer it with experience and the more experience they can throw into their answers the more they can show that they've Done. They've advised. They've been involved with. You know. They've primarily worked with minimal supervision. You know that that is exactly what we want to hear on the other side of that um table, or you know, on the other side of that team's team's call.
0: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and absolutely. There's no targets. Yeah, <laughs> we we that. Yeah, there's no targets into how many candidates have to be referred. And so. so Obviously it can be quite daunting and nerves get and and candidates do get quite worried about sort of the nerve side of things. I mean, is there any sort of tips you can sort of ask in 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 respect to sort of that and sort of how, how how to manage the nerves. And also as assessors, sort of how you kind of deal with the candidate who sort of you can see sort of maybe sort of visibly and um, nervous.
1: I think undoubtedly, as a as a professional experience, it is It is one of the most important and thus I suppose, one of the most stressful that you'll go through. So there's no, I don't think there's ever a way to make it less important. I think the thing that candidates can do is to prepare themselves for what the experience will be like. You know, for example, undertaking mock interviews. You can watch a mock interview or watch a simulation interview on the RICS website you can ask lots of different people different assessors colleagues friends family to ask you questions and put you under pressure so you basically practice those skills for the day itself uh, i think the visualization as a as a concept of thinking well you know setting up where you're going to be taking the interview working through all well, you know what am i going to do the day before what's it going to be like when i wake up what you know even what am i going to eat for breakfast you know How is that day going to go? And the more times, you know, you hear of Olympians doing this before, you know, their their medal winning day is actually going step by step through what it will happen, what you'll feel like and be able to deal with some of those emotions and the stress before you ever get into the day itself. I think, yeah, as much preparation as you can do. And I think if you I know some candidates. Struggle more with the written work, some struggle more with the interview and actually the challenge of going into that situation and I think recognizing really early on where where your strengths lie and where you need to do more work and actually get getting some help. Lionheart are able to work with you to uh, I know they do a a practice presentation and they can give you some feedback, could be speaking to your employer, speaking to other people who've gone through the APC. And getting, you know, there is absolutely no shame in get getting support where you need it. I think that can put a candidate in a really good position. As long as the other two things are just about that kind of balance of not just focusing on the APC, having some time out, you know, going to do a sport, going to have a walk, go, you know, it could be going to the cinema, whatever floats your boat on just um giving your mind a bit of a bit of rest. I, I don't think it's any different from if you were if you were training to go to the Tour de France, let's say you're putting your body under a lot of stress. And I think the APC is no different that you're training for this marathon uh, and your mind is under a lot of stress. So actually just giving yourself a bit of time out can help to reduce the nerves because your body's not, you know, your body and mind aren't under so much constant pressure. And that can just help to take yourself off the ceiling a little bit when it comes to the the crunch time. Absolutely. I suppose from the other side of the table is assessors. Uh, it's very easy for us to recognize when a candidate is you know we expect everybody to be nervous but we can visual not you there's so many cues and clues to us that candidate is nervous you know we will say to we understand that this process is you know it's challenging you'll be nervous you can just take you know a couple of seconds to collect yourself you know let you know just let us know how you're feeling as the interview goes on and we can then work with them to draw the best you know for them to perform best in that interview so candidates who are particularly stressed can just say I'm really stressed about this we've all been there so we will completely understand what what you're going through and we're here to help you get through it
0: yeah absolutely and I think yeah as you say more, you you all there there at one side and I think we are actually, um, one of our huge podcasts, we are going to go delve, delve a bit more deeply into sort of managing the everything. So, uh, yeah, keep an eye out for that one. We are almost at the end of today's episode. But before I hand over to Jane for some closing words, I would just like to thank you all for listening today. Please do leave a review and subscribe. And for more information on today's episode, and further available support, check out the Blurb and the RICS website. So, uh, Jen, over to you for any last words of wisdom to share with the candidates who are getting ready now for their interview.
1: Well, thank you very much for having me, and thank you, everybody, for listening. Um, I think if you have your interview in um, April, May, June time, do not panic you have plenty of time either to finish off your submission or if you've already finished it off, in which case um, you're in even better time. You've got lots of time to get prepared. I would make the most of all the wonderful resources that are out there. Start doing your wider reading, get as much help as you can. And I think the most important thing is to plan ahead. Print out a diary, print out a calendar, whatever it is, put in the dates that your interview could potentially be in work back. And if you know you've got a plan, you'll be well prepared. You can't miss anything out. You've covered everything. And on the day, you know that you've done absolutely everything you could to um, to be ready and to succeed. So good luck.
0: Thanks. And that's a great way to finish. So yeah, a big thank you, Jen, for t- your time today. And again, thank you all for listening. And keep an eye out for our future candidate support episodes of the RICS podcast. So take care and goodbye.